Well, welcome again to Sunday night service. And we are kicking off and looking at the next two weeks. We're going to look at a classic story from scripture, a story you are most likely familiar with. It is the Christmas story. The Christmas story. Now, if you are like me, kind of during this season, for me it really starts, I think, the week of Thanksgiving and goes all the way through Christmas time. But for some reason, I love to watch some of my kind of favorite, what I would say are classic movies that I just love to watch. And this time of year, I always like to view them. Literally last night at my home, if you were over, Lord of the Rings was on. Just kind of an epic journey. And we put it on over several different nights, kind of over the holiday season. And there's a few other movies, kind of favorites, that we always love to go back to during this season. And even though there's stories that we know the plot, lots of them I know the lines to them, there's still stories that are a good reminder and are impactful to us, even though we know what the stories say and what the outcomes are. And so this year we're going to be looking just tonight in the next Sunday night at the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1 and 2. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you spent much time in church, this is not a new story. This is not something you're unfamiliar with, but there's still power in those familiar stories that we know. And our team thought, hey, of all the things that we need with the crazy year that 2020 has been, why not just spend a few weeks going back to some good reminders of the Christmas story? So I want to encourage you, uh, if you have your Bible tonight, find one, open up your phone if you don't have one with you, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, that's going to be our main text for tonight as we launch into the Christmas story. And we're going to begin tonight at verse 26 of chapter 1. The first part of this chapter that we kind of have skipped over to get to this is the introduction to the book as well as the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist. And we're going to jump in tonight in chapter 1 starting at verse 26. It says this, Luke 1 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So an angel, Gabriel, shows up to, it says, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, if you were just to open your, your Google search and to search Nazareth and its occurrence of scripture, and you look at the Old Testament and all the time that talked about Nazareth, you would come up with a big whopping zero. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. This is not a town of notoriety, not a town of fame. It is not a town in a famous region. There is nothing of note about Galilee and even less to note about the city of Nazareth. It is a small town in an obscure area. It would be like for someone who lives in Illinois 
If you were to hear of someone famous and prominent, maybe running for some office in the state coming from the town of Valley City, Illinois. Now, if you're like me, you've probably never heard of Valley City, Illinois, because according to the last census results that we have, it is the smallest incorporated area in Illinois, a total population in 2010 of 13 people. Now, Nazareth might have been slightly bigger than 13 people, but not by much. And it was a place of no notoriety, no fame, but God sends his servant Gabriel there to show up to Mary. When Mary is first introduced here in the passage, notice that both in verse 20 and 27, both times, excuse me, twice before her name is given, she is referred to as a virgin. This is pointing already, immediately before we even know her name, to the miraculous nature of the birth that is to come, to the child that she will have. And about Mary, we know that she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now this betrothal period in which Mary and Joseph were is similar, but has some distinct differences from kind of an engagement period that we would have in our culture. The first step, there was kind of two steps to the marriage process in their culture. The first was an engagement. Unlike ours though, when it was kind of a private thing in between two individuals, back then in a formal engagement, a contract was given. And back then in their culture, there was an exchange for the bride price as well. So kind of all of the details, everything had already been arranged, but they would still live separately, with, live with their families until the second step came about a year after this engagement had begun with the celebration of the wedding. And so Mary and Joseph find themselves in this in-between time, but it is a much more kind of serious arrangement than it would be even an engagement in our culture today. We are not given a ton of details about Mary. We're not told her age, but due to just the cultural setting of the ancient Near East and Israel during the time where Mary and Joseph lived, we know that Mary is a very young woman Many scholars estimate that she is a teenager, possibly even as young as 12 years old. And so Mary is betrothed to Joseph when Gabriel shows up to her. He says, greetings that God is with you. And she's troubled, not at the arrival of this angel, but, but she's perplexed. Maybe is a better translation. She's not like upset, but is perplexed. She doesn't understand this greeting that, that God is with you, that she is being called favored. And so the angel tells her that she again has found favor with God. This is going to be a theme here in Luke 1, that Mary is one who has received grace, has received mercy, has received favor from God. And, and when it talks here about Mary being favored by God, it's not pointing to some high moral quality of Mary's life. It's not saying that God searched the entire world to find the most virtuous person and Mary, you are it. But what the, the passage is saying is Mary is being shown grace by God. And because of the grace that God initiates and takes towards her, that she is then highly favored. Mary is highly favored, not because of what she has done, but Mary is highly favored because she has received grace and mercy from God. That God's sovereign favor is on her and her life. And so it's not because of some merits that God chooses her, but because of his grace and initiative. 
And this prophecy comes to her that she will conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus. And then we're told just a little bit about this son who is to come. Verse 32 says that he will be great. Now we use that word in a lot of different ways, right? That pizza was great. My family's great. But in scripture, great is typically an adjective that is reserved only to describe God. And so right here, there's something different already about this son that was to come a unique word that wouldn't be described for other people other than for God. So he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The most high is a title referring to God. And so being the son of the most high is a clear claim right at the beginning that this son who was to come to Mary would be divine. The divinity of Jesus is attested to from the very beginning in the gospel of Luke and indeed in all of scripture. So this will be a divine child. It points to Jesus's nature. And then it says that God will give him the throne of his father, David, and that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will be of no ends. It's not specifically quoting, but it is clearly alluding and and focusing back to here the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is often referred to as the Davidic covenant, that God makes to David and to his descendants after him. You remember Mary is betrothed to Joseph, who is a clear descendant of David. It mentions here in the passage. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm not going to read the whole thing for us, but, but just a few verses in verse 12 and 13, it says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And verse 16 ends it. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so when Gabriel makes this claim to Mary, he is clearly saying here that this child who is to come is not just a divine child, but this child who is to come is the Messiah. This is going to be the promised one of Israel that scripture has looked forward to, that prophets have spoken of old, that this one who, of David who was to come, who would establish this forever, this eternal kingdom, whose throne would be forever. This is the child, Mary, that you are to give birth to. He is the Messiah. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high, again, speaking of God, will overshadow you. Therefore the, child, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so a virgin giving birth, that Mary is confused on how this can be, but this points directly back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 prophesies of the Messiah to come being born of a virgin. 
And that's why it's so significant that this passage points out the virginity of Mary. And now we have here lined up, as we saw at the beginning of Luke 1, if you go back and you can look there, but he, he starts to combine them here with Elizabeth and with Mary and their children, two extraordinary births of John the Baptist and then here of Jesus. And I love this summary of what God is doing here, that the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. See, when you look at scripture, often God uses greatly those who have come from the most extraordinary circumstances. And people who have extraordinary births are often standing out in scripture. If you have studied scripture much at all, you know that children coming from kind of crazy circumstances is actually quite common throughout scripture. When you look back at the Old Testament, my mind first goes right to to Abraham and Sarah who conceived of Isaac and had Isaac in their very old age when God showed up and a barren woman was able to give birth. If you fast forward then to a couple generations, you have Jacob and his wife, Rachel, who was barren, but then God opened her womb and she was able to give birth. If you fast forward to the birth of the first prophet of Israel, of Samuel, his mother, Hannah, was barren until God opened her womb and gave birth. Then in Luke 1, with Elizabeth was the barren, but notice that is a barren woman giving birth. And with Mary, it's an entirely different set of circumstances. Those are amazing. This is beyond amazing. This is God's clear intervention in Mary giving birth. And Mary's response to this amazing thing that God has done, this amazing blessing, but also this amazing challenge that God has placed in front of her in her life is this, that I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See, what does Mary bring to the table that God should use her? What is it about Mary that God sends his favor upon her and blesses her and uses her in such an extraordinary way? I love what one person said about Mary. The the thing that stands out about Mary is this, that she was available and willing to serve. Notice the scripture doesn't commend Mary because of your family heritage, this is going to happen. Because of how you have lived your life, because of your actions, because of your piety, because of your giving of sacrifices, because your church attendance, because you've read scripture, because of, no, it's it's not because of that. It's, It's because Mary was open and available to serve however God wanted and she was willing to serve. And this willingness to serve God however she was, Mary, I think at this point, even as young as she is, is is starting to accept and being willing to being ridiculed and mocked for following God, right? Like, like how how is she going to explain this? The, the, The road that she has in front of her over the next nine months and maybe years to come, she's already thinking these are going to be difficult. We know in scripture how hard it was for Joseph to accept this. Other gospels talk about that dynamic and the relationship thereof. But Mary accepts this as a servant of God. She is available to God. And when we have a heart that is open and being available to God, to being used by however he would want, it leads us to trust for God's direction and enablement in our lives. When we are available to be used by God, he gives us direction and enablement for what he calls us to. See, when God gives us direction, though, it's clear here in this passage and throughout scripture that God's plan often won't make sense to us. 
right? Like, like this angel shows up and Mary's like confused. She's like, wait, what's going on? And even after this, it's probably not like Mary was like, oh, I got it. Well, this is why, because it's clear and I know all of these things will line up and I can exactly see what God is doing. But when God gives us direction, it means trusting him and his plan and where he's called us to, even when we don't know the specifics of what it is going to mean. See, there's certain times in life where it's easy to trust God when his plan in front of us seems to make clear sense, right? Where we can make logical sense. Okay, well, I think God is doing this. And so that makes it easy to trust in him. But when, like Mary, we are placed in extraordinary circumstances in life and God's plan doesn't make sense to us, that's when it is time to trust God. Becoming available to God, meaning trusting God's direction for your life, even when it doesn't make sense. I know for me personally, there's times in my life where when difficulty comes, when hardship comes, when things happen that kind of, I'm not sure what God's doing, I try and give it like a little spin. Or right, I say, well, well, maybe, maybe God is trying to do this. Now that happened to me actually this past week. On Monday, I received some information that kind of was like, okay. Um, and, and I, I kind of handled this. Well, well, maybe, maybe God wants to do this. And I put my little spin on it, right? Like, ah, I, I think I can make sense of what God's doing. He's doing this. By Tuesday afternoon, it was clear that's not what God is doing. Right? And, and I thought, well, I can make sense of what God's doing. He's doing this. And within 24 hours, it was like, nope, that's not what God's doing either. So what are you left with when you can't make sense of God's will? It's just your trust in him. And Mary didn't necessarily see the full picture. It was confusing. It was be challenging the road ahead, but she was available and trusted that God would provide the direction and the enablement to follow whatever God would have for her. See, when God leads in your life, when you're available to him, where God guides you, he will enable you to walk that path. God doesn't call you to anything that he then won't give you power to do. He doesn't call you to anything which he won't give you the enablement to carry out what he has planned for your life. And so Mary knows probably the road ahead will be difficult, but God is a God who will enable and empower her for what she has ahead. And so she accepts what God has done. Verse 39, the story continues. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. This is like her hurrying there, right? It quickly goes into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, who is the focus of the chapter before we picked it up tonight and introduced to Mary. And Elizabeth is now foreshadowing here, just even in her response to Mary, the relationship of John the Baptist to Jesus. 
right? Elizabeth exalts Mary and the, the blessing that she has to see Mary and this child that is to come. It's almost reminiscent of when John the Baptist talks of Jesus later, of greater is he, that he must become greater, excuse me, and I must become less. Elizabeth sees the blessing. The Holy Spirit reveals it to her. And in verse 45, I love that this phrase, sometimes some scholars refer to this as the first beatitude in the book of Luke. You often think of the beatitudes, if you're a follower of Jesus and know scripture, of those sayings that occur in Matthew 5. Blessed is he, blessed is he, blessed is he. In verse 45, we have one. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is the one who trusts that God will be faithful to his word. See, as Luke begins his gospel, why does he start here with the the prophecies of these two men being born? Why does he look here already? Because Luke is setting the foundation in the gospel of this. What God says he will do. What God promises, he will fulfill. And Elizabeth carries it so well. The one who believes that God will fulfill what he promises is blessed by God. And she sees in Mary one who believes in the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to her. And so we have here then a a response of Mary in worship to this saying, to, to again realizing what God has done for her. It's here in chapter one, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. This passage here, these verses together are often called Mary's Magnificat. In fact, in my Bible, that's kind of the heading of it. And that is there because the word Magnificat is the Latin word for magnifies, which in the Latin translation is the first word of this song. And this is a song of response, of, of joy given to God. And it kind of shifts here. The song starts kind of with Mary's personal praise, and then it kind of widens like a corporate praise and response to God. It starts here with kind of this personal thing, right? My soul. And I love these words as she looks at what God has done for her. It it magnifies the Lord. It rejoices in God, my Savior. For God has seen my humble estates and I will be called blessed. And I love this. Why, Why is she to be called blessed? Why will Mary be called blessed? For he who has done, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. That idea there in verse 48, it's, it's a small kind of phrase, but it's significant in the gospel of Luke where she says in, in verse 48, from now on, 
all generations will call me blessed. That phrase from now on carries significance in the gospel of Luke. It's kind of like a flashing neon sign, like, hey, pay attention to this. It occurs a few other times in the gospel. In chapter five, Jesus, when he calls some of his disciples, he says, you no longer fish for fish, but from now on, you'll be fishers of men. And talking about this work that he has come to do and how it, it's either you believe in him or not. And the gospel is divisive in this. In, in, in Luke 12, he talks about how from now on people will be divided because of the work of Jesus. In chapter 22 of Luke, when he is having the last supper with his disciples, Jesus says this, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And later in chapter 22, when he stands on trial before the Jewish council, he says that from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So this phrase from now on has significance throughout. So Mary is saying from now on, all generations will look at me and will call me blessed. Why will generations look at her and call her blessed? One who has favor from God. It's not because of what she's done. It's because of what God has done for her. Get that verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. As one commentator put it, God owes her nothing and she has received everything from him. Right? God owed Mary nothing and she recognizes that she has received everything from him. That's why her humility is the natural overflow here because she realizes she's not worthy. She's not deserving. It's all grace from God to her. And that's why humility should be the proper response in our hearts to the work that God has done to us. Because just like God didn't owe Mary anything, the gospel proclaims this, that God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe me anything. This is why when, when talking about salvation in the Bible, it calls it a gift from God. God doesn't owe us salvation. He gifts it to us. God doesn't owe us anything. And so we rejoice because he has given us everything while he owed us nothing. And salvation is a gift. And Mary recognized the greatness of what God had done for her completely undeserved. And the humility in her heart overflowed into praise and worship when she recognized her status as one completely undeserving of what God has done for us. This is true for each of us today. We are undeserving of God's love, of his grace, of his mercy. And when we begin to recognize our status before God as being undeserved ones who have received grace from God, the humility and the overflow of gratefulness in our hearts should flow just as it does here with Mary. And then about halfway through her song here in verse 50, the, this expanse begins to widen from her reflections to, to all people, right? His mercy is for those who fear him in verse 50. From generation to generation, it's looking back and it's looking forward to how God's mercy and his grace works to anyone who fears God. Right, The blessing that she has received starts with fearing God. And Mary looks to the past. She knows who this God is who's called her. She knows who this God is who set her apart. She knows the works of God in the past. And when Mary looks to the past, it gives her assurance for the future. 
right? She looks at all these things that God has done. This is who God is. This is what he's done. And she says, if this is who God is, I can trust that this is who God is going to be in the future. And so no matter what God has called Mary to, because she knows what he has done, she can be confident in what God is going to do. See, we can look to the past for assurance into the future. We can look to the past of what God has done and who God is for assurance in the future. See, sometimes we might live our lives and because of the circumstances that have clouded our view, it may seem where we stand that God is being silent, that God isn't active in our world. Perhaps the challenges, the unique challenges of 2020, of the last nine months have, have caused you to just experience a period of silence where you don't sense God leading and directing and guiding you in any specific way. Can I remind you that, that Luke chapter one breaks into history after 400 years of silence for the people of God. 400 years since the prophets had spoken, 400 years of, of silence from God, yet God breaks in. And Mary can look back, not just in her current time, but looks back throughout all of history and what God has done to be assured of what God will do in the future. So I just want to remind you, even if the last few months, maybe the last several years, you felt a silence from God have been difficult. Look back to what God has done for all of your life. Look back to what God has done throughout all of history and be assured of what God is going to do in the future. See, as we stand here kind of already starting to look right towards the next year, I think back to last December when I was talking to you and it wasn't just to a camera, people were here in the building. And none of us would have ever, I think, predicted any of what this year would be like. And so it's hard to say, oh, 2021, it's going to be like this. I think all of us kind of realize we don't really know what the future holds. But there's one who does. And we can see how he has been faithful to his promises in the past. And now we can trust that he'll be faithful to his promises in the future. So we don't know what this next year will hold. But we do know this, that we serve a God who has made promises to us. And that God who makes promises to us is faithful in fulfilling those promises to us. God, we thank you that we can look to you in times of trial and difficulty and we can see your goodness to us and to your people throughout all of history. And we can trust in your promise for us for the future. God, we do thank you this season for your son, Jesus Christ, for his divine and extraordinary birth and that he came to seek and to save the lost. God, like Mary, we deserve nothing from you and you have given us everything. And we thank you for that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.